that's why I wrote this book. I, I wanted us to see if there was a different way that we could move through this era of curiosity, to see if there was a way for us to, you know, meet our loneliness, our social isolation, our feelings of, of fear and anxiety in this moment of division and political polarization. Is there something else that we can do to meet this moment? And the answer is something that we both love, which is to be curious. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. Every once in a while, I get a trifecta, a guest who covers all my choose to be curious spaces, research, theory, and real world curiosity as applied. Today is one of those days. Scott Shigeoka was born and raised in Hawaii, but this island boy now calls the Mojave Desert his creative home. That sort of makes sense when you understand the move in the context of his commitment to bridging divides, finding common ground, using storytelling to help us think about everything from political, spiritual identity divides to climate change and lessons learned from everyday entrepreneurs who are defying the odds. His debut book, Seek, How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World, dives into the science, stories, and practices that can help us all level up our curiosity. I've been following Scott's work for some time for obvious reasons, and when he announced the release date for his book, I jumped. If you've ever listened to any number of these shows, you know I struggle in some ways with the big bucket that is curiosity. One word to describe so many different forms of brain activity and behavior. One of the many things I appreciate in Seek was Scott's focus on what he calls deep curiosity, which he describes as a search for understanding what leads to connection and transformation, and in so doing, making someone feel seen and heard, reminding them that they matter. A curiosity trifecta indeed. So welcome, Scott. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) What an amazing introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I sort of feel like you need no introduction, but I'm happy to have you here. So I want to know, what's your curiosity origin story? You've done all this Mm. stuff. Where did you start? Yeah, well, from birth, because we know that (laughs) curiosity is something that we are all born with. It's something that we born into this world with. It's, you know, our natural born superpower is what I call it. But, you know, I can remember one of the questions I always ask is when was the first time you can remember being curious? Mm-hmm. And I grew up in Hawaii, like you mentioned, and I grew up in this, you know, multi-generational household. I had my grandparents, my mom, you know, my sister and I, and, you know, we had a small, you know, 650 square foot house, but we have this land all around it. Mm. And one of the big focal points of the house was this mango tree, this huge mango tree. And every season we'd have Uh. hundreds of mangoes that would come from it. And I remember as a kid standing underneath this really giant 
fruit bearing tree and just staring up at it with awe, but also a lot of curiosity and thinking, you know, can I climb this tree? You know, who planted this tree? Um, what would I build on this tree? And uh, that mango tree became such a big part of my life, actually. Uh, my grandpa actually planted that tree and many, many decades before I was even born. And my dad and I, uh, before he would go to prison, actually, he built a tree house for me and that tree that became wow. a place of respite and, and a sanctuary for me in, in some really hard years in my life. And the mango tree was also, uh, unfortunately, it needed to be cut down. So it was a lesson in grief and loss and how to honor, you know, something that is really important to you that won't stay with you forever. So um, yeah, it, it started with these really simple questions, but it grew more and more complex. And I would say that's probably one of the big origin stories is the mango tree in my backyard. I love that you answer this question with roots, that the roots of mm. your curiosity is about roots. That's really beautiful. So you open your book and I guess undertook a whole year's journey zigzagging across the country because you worry that we live in an era of incuriosity. What, what does that mean to you? And what do you think it means for all of us? Yeah. So I, I, I share in the book that we're living in what I call the era of incuriosity. And what that means to me is it's something that I think we all can feel in our own lives in some way. It's this um, disconnection and the loneliness and the social isolation that many of us feel. And if we don't feel it, um, many people who we might even know might feel that. The Surgeon General Vivek Murthy just came out with a report with his team that tracked, you know, just how grave of an issue, a social issue, this issue of disconnection is. And, you know, so in curiosity to me is disconnection because it means we're turning away from others or we're turning ourselves away from others. And as a result, those feelings of loneliness and isolation can come to it. But also the era of curiosity means to me the division that we feel. I mean, you turn on a news channel and you can't avoid you right. know, these hot button issues being flared up and, you know, almost creating a rage within our communities, even into our families. Sometimes they, they seep into the dinner conversation, into family reunions, create, you know, blow ups. Um, there was a, a recent report by uh, Reuters that said that one in six had ended a connection with someone as a result of the 2016 presidential election. Yeah, that number is chilling. It's very chilling. And, you know, we see it with book bans and, you know, PTA and town halls just erupting. Uh, I heard a story of a YMCA that no longer shows news stations, you know, in their gym because it created a fight, you know, with wow. the center. And so there's so many illustrations of this and if we don't feel it in our own personal lives which i would say what a blessing and i want to learn how you're <laughs> able to to avoid it or or not have that um you know i i think for most of us we do feel it in some way and, and many of us will turn away from it as an act of protection and preservation but as a result we lose relationships and we also suffer and and that's why i wrote this book i i wanted us to see if there was a different way that we could move through this era of curiosity to see if there was a way for us to, you know, meet our loneliness, our social isolation, our feelings of, of fear and anxiety in this moment of division and political polarization. Is there something else that we can do to meet this moment? And the answer is something that we both love, which is to be curious. And, right. and that is a whole loaded term, but, um, 
you know, I, I talk a little bit more about what that actually means and looks like to be curious. And you talk specifically about the importance of investing in deep curiosity, yes. something more than just, you have a nice term for a sort of predatory curiosity, like performative mm -hmm. curiosity, curiosity, this isn't mm -hmm. really curiosity. And then you have this kind of really nice mnemonic dive mm -hmm. about sort of how you get to deep curiosity, detach, intend, value, embrace. And I think somewhere in the book, you remind us that the more we dive, the deeper we get. Mm -hmm. which is also just a really beautiful image for the whole thing. I thought, so take a moment and talk about dive. I yeah, mean, it's like the whole book, but you know, in, yeah. a, in a nutshell. Yeah. So first I'll talk about the spectrum of curiosity, which is, yeah. you know, on one side of the spectrum is shallow curiosity and on the other is deep curiosity. And so shallow curiosity is, you know, the typical way that most of us think about curiosity. It's a way to, attain or extract information you know we want to learn something for our next pub trivia or we go to a conference and we ask someone what's your name and where do you live and what do you do for work and and there's nothing wrong with that kind of curiosity it just doesn't necessarily take us underneath the surface to really see who a person is what their stories are what their values are uh what they're you know uh, struggling with right now what's troubling them um what they're joy joyous about you know um so deep curiosity is where we actually go beneath the surface and we dive a little bit deeper to unearth some things that might not show up with a simple question like what's your name or what do you do for work or um, where do you live? So instead it invites us to, to learn to ask questions that are a bit more powerful and that evoke a response right. that goes deeper. So instead of what's your name, you might ask, what's the story of your name? Or instead of asking, so where do you live? You might say, what does home mean to you actually? Or instead of asking, what do you do for your job? You might say, tell me about the times when you come to life, you know? come alive you know what right. what does that look like for you and so that just opens the door to something that's a little bit deeper it's an invitation for folks to to go a little deeper and and that's where the connection and the transformation lives and so that's what i define as you said you know in the introduction deep curiosity is a particular type of understanding that actually connects us to either ourselves to one another or transforms us um, in some way and the way that we can access that deep curiosity, I, I use this dive model in the book. And the way you can think about it is each letter of dive, D-I-V-E, is a core muscle group of deep curiosity. So nice. D stands for detach, which is to let go of your ABCs. So your ABCs are assumptions, your biases, uncertainty. So that's D, detach. Then you have I intend, which is what's the way that you're going to prepare your mindset and your setting for curiosity. Then you have V, which is value. So how do you see the dignity of the person you're being curious with, which might also be yourself. So how do you see your own value and your own self-worth? And then E is to embrace. And that's about welcoming the hard times in our lives, which is when we actually need curiosity the most, deep curiosity mm -hmm. the most, because, <laughs> you know, in those moments of, you know, heartbreak, grief, 
uh, tra big transitions like moving to a new place, uh, getting laid off, uh, a divorce, a new marriage, like curio deep curiosity is actually a moment that we can benefit the most from using it in these times that seem really difficult or are really difficult. And so that's dive. And so in the book, I introduce each of those four muscle groups. And I also give a bunch of different practices that anyone anywhere can use that are creative and fun and interesting. And, and that allows people to detach, to attend, to value or to embrace. And the really nice thing about the model is it's a virtuous cycle. So the more you practice one of these muscles, the more that you're able to exercise your deep curiosity muscles yeah. as a whole. So yeah, so that's basically the overview of it. They're all wonderful, but I have to say the show is called Choose to be Curious. So intend, my yeah. favorite section, yeah. right? And then when you wrote <laughs> deep curiosity isn't given to us, it's something we choose. And I thought, mm. yes, yes, you have to, this is something you have to decide you're going towards mm. and that you're and and that you're gonna you're gonna put your back into it, if you will. Yeah. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Scott Shigeoka. Scott's debut book, Seek, How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World, dives into the science, stories, and practices that can help us level up our curiosity. I mean, one of the things that I love, as you say, is you have all these tips and tricks and what I would call curiosity practices. And I want to talk about a few of my favorites, if we can. And then I want to ask you if you have some favorites. I know that's kind of a tricky question. But when I became a student of curiosity, which was about 10 years ago, I came across a wonderful quote from S. Leonard Rubinstein, who is a professor of writing, that bewilderment is power. And he defined curiosity as a willing a proud and eager confession of ignorance. And that came immediately to mind when I saw one of your many curiosity practices to be an admitter. Mm. Why is that so hard mm. and yet so important? I really like this mm. one. Yeah, so we live in this culture right now where being right is sort of the revered or uh, the most exciting thing for us to to see. Um, and it's something that's really valued and I would say overvalued mm -hmm. in society. There's, you know, literature that says that the person who, you know, speaks the most will likely become the leader that emerges in a small group. And when I say literature, I mean the research. And there's also anecdotally, I think we can all sense that when we're in a work meeting or when we're, you know, having a discussion with our family or our friends, you know, like everyone wants to, you know, seem like they're right and they know exactly what it is that we know everything that we need to know about this topic. There's nothing more for us to learn. Mm -hmm. And one of my other favorite research pieces is when in doubt shout, which is this idea that we, when we have the most doubt about a topic, that is actually when we're more likely to double down and to say, you know, that. I loved that. Yeah. I loved that. Yeah. 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 And I think so, you know, we have this culture and this um, sort of intrinsic desire to to be right, because when we look right, we look smart, we might get promoted, we might seem more capable. But I actually think that we we lose out on so much if we don't also admit when we're wrong, if we mm -hmm. don't also admit that we don't know something. And there's this notion of what researchers will call intellectual humility, this idea of admitting that 
we have limited a limited understanding and a limited sense of knowledge. And so what I invite people to do with the Be an Admitter practice is to see the joy, see the joy and the the pleasure that can actually come from saying, I really don't know, or I would love to learn more about this, or I was wrong. And that's so hard to do. And that's why I give actual scripts in the book to to help people. To help people, you know, navigate that because it's not an easy thing to say that you're wrong, but it's a magical thing because when you do that, you see a shift that happens, let's say in a marriage where you're constantly, you know, with your partner, you know, getting into these different arguments and you're each like standing your ground. I just went through this recently with my own partner, you know, we're, we're right, our viewpoint's right. <laughs> and, and what we're doing is we're actually turning away from our partners. We're choosing to be in curious yeah. about them and where they're coming from and what matters to them. And, and we're just trying to be heard, but we're at this point just screaming over each other, talking over each other. And so a practice like being an emitter allows us, and I, and I did that actually, I had this moment when, when I realized what was going on and, and I said, you know what, like, I'm actually, I'm wrong. I, I actually don't know enough about this issue. And I, I think I need to learn more. And I want to learn more about your, your perspective and where you're coming from. And uh, it just changes the whole tone of the conversation. And it, it, it recenters you on the relationship rather than trying to be right. And it just makes it less of a horrible experience because it doesn't feel <laughs> good when you're in an argument and, and it doesn't feel good for the relationship or your partner when you're in an argument. And so being an admitter, is it's, it's not just a de-escalation, but it's also a way for us to access some, a, you know, a, a feeling that is much healthier and is much more nourishing. That's an interesting kind of segue to the, the second one that, that kind of stood out for me was visualize yourself being curious. And and I th- I think the reason it spoke to me was I think about all the times where I feel like I am not feeling the least bit curious about this. And and to to sort of take the moment to go, okay, well what would I look like if I were feeling curious about this? And um and some of that is kind of tapping into the projection, the idea that oh, like it might feel better than what I feel now. Is that what you were looking for there? Yeah, I think, well, so in that chapter, we talk about Alan Richardson, who's a psychologist who did this really incredible study that basically divided a group into a group of people, the participants into three groups. And they were all asked to uh, shoot free throws, basketball free throws, Mm -hmm. and none of them really had basketball experience in, in the groups. So the first group essentially practiced shooting free throws for 20 days straight. They just went to the court practice free throws and did that every day, 20 days straight. Uh, the second group <laughs> practiced free throws only on the first day and then mm-hmm. on the 20th day. And then they did nothing in between. Nothing in between. Okay. Okay. But then the third group did the same thing as the second. They only did free throw practice on the first day and then on the 20th day, but they visualized themselves successfully making free throws in the days in between. So you have these three different groups, right? The one who practiced every day, Second, first day, last day, third, first day, last day, but with visualization. And what he found in this research was that group two didn't really improve at all from their in their free throws because they didn't have any practice. You know, they only practiced on the first and the twentieth day. But what was really interesting is that the first and the last group were basically improving at the same rate 
even though the first group practice 18 additional days and the third group. I found that fascinating. What it sort of shows to us is that, you know, there is a power in, in visualization when it's done right and when it's it's guided in the correct ways. Visualization can actually help us to improve our performance, not just in athletics, but also in other aspects of our lives. And I posit this with our curiosity as well. So if we can go through a similar practice where we can close our eyes and imagine ourselves maybe going up to um, our boss or to a team. And it's a moment when we really need to be curious. And so we can imagine, you know, what's the way that I'm going to show up in that meeting? What are the questions that I'm going to ask? Like, what are the ways, what are the things that I'm going to say? How will I respond if I hear something that feels really activating for me? And, and how will I choose to respond rather than react in those moments. So you, you know, you can go through a visualization practice and that'll actually improve the way that you show up in that, in the moment of that actual experience. And so in the book, I, I guide people through a visualization practice that they can use for anything, whether it's like on a first date, you want to be curious or, you know, in a work meeting or at a PTA conference, you know, whatever, whatever it is, <laughs> um, I give everyone a script. And I also will have an audio version that folks can walk themselves through on my website. Oh, nice. It takes less than 10 minutes. And it's just, you yeah. you know, it's a, it's a way to close your eyes, go through an experience. And that 10 minutes will, you know, give you a way bigger return. And I also understand that not everyone, you know, there is like one to 3% of folks that can't visualize when they close their eyes. So I do give alternative sort of activities for folks who struggle with visualization that still work to prepare you um, with setting the intention for curiosity as well. Scott and I recorded this conversation back in July. I was at Chautauqua in Northern New York, up near Buffalo. And as it happened, I was scrambling for reliable Wi-Fi, and the good folks at Chautauqua were gracious enough to allow me to use their studio on very, very short notice. So thanks to them. I'm not even sure where Scott was at the time he gets around. But he was at the start of a massive media tour leading up to the release of his book this week. I promised to embargo the interview until now. Yeah, that was hard. We ended up talking for a lot longer than would fit into one episode. But rather than edit that conversation way down, I decided to make two episodes of it. But it's not really enough for two full episodes, so I get to draw on some other work he's done as well. Lucky me, lucky you. Since he and I spoke in July, Scott published a terrific piece in the Harvard Business Review that I wanted to tap into, in case you're not a regular reader of that particular publication. In the article, he focuses on four phrases that build a culture of curiosity, He's writing for business leaders, specifically in the workplace, but I think these phrases have universal appeal. It's a great list, not because there's anything revolutionary or even particularly novel about the four phrases, maybe specifically because there isn't, but because they are so very doable. The first is admitting we might not be omniscient and saying I don't know. As a recovering know-it-all, I can attest to the power of this particular sentence. Intellectual humility is a kind of superpower. 
to our ears, so hyper-obsessed with being the smart one in the room. And admitting ignorance is kind of scary. Maybe seems like it sounds like defeat. But as Scott reminds us, research on intellectual humility shows that those who practice it are rarely perceived as less competent. In fact, the opposite is true. They're seen as more competent and are viewed in a more positive light as more communal and friendly. You do have to follow up with an action plan. No point in saying, I don't know, and not making some effort to learn and grow. But that's a bonus too, leading by example. According to Scott, research shows that practicing intellectual humility can also reduce anxiety in the workplace. Another win-win. The second phrase he highlights is tell me more. A beautiful invitation to whomever to expand on whatever it is they've just said. Your friend loved a book. Tell me more. Your partner had a tough day. Oh, tell me more. Your kid actually volunteers an observation about anything? Tell me more. In the workplace, our colleagues make dozens of bids for our attention, especially for those in leadership positions or positions of power. They might say things like, this is exciting or this is overwhelming. When we miss those nuggets, when we don't follow up, we miss a chance to maintain or strengthen relationships with the people we work with. Instead of moving on to the next thing, try slowing down and saying, tell me more. Next, I understand that you're more than your job. This one is definitely for those bosses out there. Being open to what's going on in people's lives is good management. It helps us get a handle on what's going on for people and flags potential work-life conflicts that are tripping people up and messing up projects. According to Scott, research shows that unsolved work-life conflict has implications for employees' productivity and job performance. It can lead to problems like higher turnover and have a negative impact on psychological safety. Finally, who else? Look to more than the usual suspects for answers and ideas. Who else might have a unique perspective or know something about this? Who else should we be talking to? This is like one of my all-time favorite questions from Carlisle Levine, who joined me for a conversation about curiosity and evaluation. Carlisle helps big international nonprofit groups assess whether they're having the impact they intend. She uses all the formal metrics and all the quantifiable tests. And then, after she's done all that, she asks what she calls the best question ever. Anything else? You've been listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Thank you for joining us here today. You can find all my shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. Be sure to check out my show notes and links. I put a lot of effort into collecting those. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious. Many thanks to my guest, Scott Shigeoka. His book, Seek, How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World, was released November 14th. Links to it and his other work on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Arizona Moon by Cholate via Blue Dot Sessions. I've been doing this show for seven and a half years. 
in that time, curiosity has been ascendant, wildly, wonderfully ascendant. A lot more people are paying a lot more attention to the subject than was true when I got started with it. Or at least a lot more people are talking about it. It's definitely a hot buzzword. You can't throw your laptop without hitting some business website or educational institution with a slogan involving curiosity. The problem I see, however, is that it risks becoming, as Scott would say, performative. We just go through the motions, not really engaged, just acting curious, because that's what we're all supposed to do these days. One of the things I appreciate about Scott's work is his emphasis on deep curiosity, on digging in just a little bit more, getting to the good stuff, asking something more than the surface questions, looking for something deeper. So taking a page from his literal book, as you go into the week, ask yourself and others, what makes you come alive? I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious.